Podcast, episode 57, a sequel to Monster Squad. Welcome to Sequel Quest, the podcast where Adam, Jeff, and Jeremy invite you on a cinematic adventure to create prequels, sequels, and reboots to your favorite movie franchises. Joined by special guests along the way, Sequel Quest is go for launch. So let the adventure begin now. 30 years before this podcast begins, a film studio marketing team were tasked with bringing an awesome kids monster movie to theaters that could have launched a continuing franchise of adventures, animated series, and comic books. They blew it. Now, it is Sequel Quest's turn. Hey, jerkoids! Put down that pie the scary German guy gave you and let's get the show started. 99% 99% sure the Wolfman's got nards. I'm one of your hosts, Adam. Some people call their teachers Meow Mix, but he doesn't because how rude. It's Jeremy. Howdy, howdy. And tonight we are talking about The Monster Squad from 1987, starring Andre Gower, Ryan Lambert, Tom Noonan, all the classic ghouls of cinema, written by Shade Black and directed by Fred Decker. Now, This definitely falls under the cult classic status of movies. Uh, It died a gruesome death in theaters that was pulled from the crypt by movie fans in the early 2000s. So to help us truly make sense of it all, we have a very special guest, one of the hosts of the Cult Film Club podcast and branded in the 80s, a Monster Squad fan who you better believe is in the doggone club, Mr. Sean Robert. Welcome, Sean. Hey, guys. Really glad to be here. Um, Real quick. Can't we just be in Math Squad instead? (laughs) Now, this is a film I'm not sure how many people listening have seen. Hopefully they've heard the word on the street. But uh, Jeremy, you're one of those, correct? You're brand new to this? Uh, This movie came out just before I was born. So, yeah, I've watched the trailer. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're going to get into the details of it, but just to qualify Sean just so you understand why he is definitely a member of the squad Sean you recently went on an amazing journey to amass a collection of monster squad VHS tapes and other media with a unique twist can you tell us about that process and what brought you to that Sure, yeah. I've, I've been a fan of Monster Squad since I was 10 years old uh, when the film came out. I think you kind of alluded to it earlier. There, there wasn't a ton of merchandising or any kind of push like there was for a lot of things in the 80s. And recently, somebody asked me, you know, I was like, I've been a huge fan of this movie forever. And somebody asked me, like, man, I can't wait to come over to your house and see your huge Monster Squad collection. And I don't know, this was like maybe four years ago. And it occurred to me, like, I didn't have a whole bunch of stuff from the Monster Squad, which is weird because it's practically my favorite film. Pretty much all I had was the original VHS cassette that was released to video stores back in, like, 1988. And I just, like, was thinking about it. And I was like, you know what? I kind of would like to have a pretty cool centerpiece collection in my office of Monster Squad stuff. So I started uh, seeking out, like, some of the other American releases, like the Laserdisc and the, the beta copy and stuff like that. And in the last four years, that's kind of grown to a semi-obsession where I'm trying to track down every single dead media copy of the film from every country it was ever released in. So I have a kind of ridiculous collection of uh, 24 or 25 different copies of the film on beta and VHS and Laserdisc and all kinds of stuff. 
That is awesome. It, like you said, from all over the world, where, where do you think is the most random country that you just didn't even expect that they would have a release? Yeah, I think I think the most random country is probably Turkey, which is one of the ones that I, I'm having a darn time trying to get my hands on. Uh, I think the weirdest one in my collection is from Israel. You know, there's not like a ton of VHS floating around from Israel around that I've ever seen. And I kind of dabble in VHS collecting. So, yeah, I think that's probably the, the craziest copy that I have. So what you're saying is in Israel, they've released every Golan Globus slash canon film <laughs> and then the Monster Squad. And, and then the Monster Squad, right? Yeah. And, and Red, <laughs> just for good measure. Yeah. Yeah. Now, tell me this. The other question that I had was because last time I polled you, you did not have a working VCR. So how many of these have you been able to view or have you viewed at all yet? So the main VHS copy that I have, the, the standard U.S. release or whatever, I've probably watched that VHS tape at least 100 times. But then I've had that one for almost 20 years. I just got a working VCR about three months ago, and I finally was able to start watching the Mexican version. A lot of the tapes that I have are PAL. So I don't have a VCR that's formatted to watch them. But the Mexican one, I'm kind of doing it slowly because I don't want to break the tape and it's kind of quality. <laughs> but it's got nine extra minutes in the film and it's the only copy I've ever found that's longer than the standard running time. So I'm wow. I'm dying to know what's extra in the film, but I'm just trying to go through it at a slow process so I don't break the tape. Can't wait to hear that report. That sounds awesome. So now, obviously, like you said, what are your favorite films to get that type of devotion and favor? to have that collection. What has made the Monster Squad worthy of that? And why has it stuck with you all these years? Yeah, I've thought about this a lot. So I love the 80s. I'm a hugely nostalgic person. And I love kids' adventure stuff. So there's like, you know, the Goonies or Explorers or E.T. But with the Monster Squad, that was one of the first movies that I ever saw alone in a theater where it was just me and my friend and my parents weren't chaperoning or anything like that. And it was one of the first times when I watched a film where I literally saw myself on screen. Like I was one of the characters in the Monster Squad. There's uh, the kid that they call Fat Kid. His name's Horace. I was literally Horace to the T. I mean, I wore the same town and country shirts and the crappy surf shorts. I got picked on in school for reading comic books and being overweight. And I had never seen a group of kids that felt so real. You know, I didn't realize this at the time, but like looking back, the Goonies are cool, but they're like cartoon characters. You know, they're like idealized versions of what kids kind of wish they were. But the Monster Squad is straight up like these are what kids are actually like, um, probably with the exception of Rudy. He's a little bit of a cartoon character. And there's something about that that I think when you go back and you rewatch it, that that kind of resonates, you know, with the, with the kid inside. It's like you you almost feel like you have shared memories with the kids in this film. Like, man, I did stuff like that. You know, you may, you may not have attacked actual monsters, but you had the same kinds of conversations for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and some of them inappropriate by today's standards. <laughs> oh, totally. Yeah, this is this is a very un-PC film. <laughs> yeah, the language of the 80s, something we, we look back on. But, uh, you know, I, I'm actually right there with you. I don't know if we were separated at birth, but when I first saw the film, that was exactly what I felt as well. Because again, TNC surf shirts, board shorts, all of that comics. And I also stood up to a bully once and almost got pounded, you know. So <laughs> the kids at my school actually to insult me used to call me Horace. They're like, oh, you're like Horace from Monster Squad. And I'm like, oh, and I used to be all upset about it. But then when he gets his moment in the film, you're just like, you know what? I am. Let me be. I'll be fat kid. I don't care. You know, <laughs> like he's awesome. But the other thing, too, for me was I was always fascinated 
with you know Universal Monsters, all of that. But I was too afraid to watch the films. So I spent a lot of time in my elementary school library reading the horror monster books, the Orange. Uh, yeah, the Crestwood Monster Series books. Uh, yeah, and I know you have a collection of those as well, right? Yeah, I actually just completed the Orange and Purple series of that. Those are, those are kind of hard to find because they were pretty much only sold to school libraries. So the fact that they still exist hanging out in places is actually pretty incredible. But yeah, I, I can't count the number of times I checked out like the Creature from the Black Lagoon book or the Frankenstein meets Wolfman book. That was definitely my introduction to monsters. Yeah, and the weird one for me, for some reason, I was fascinated by the murders of the Rue Morgue the book. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why. I was like, there's not really a great monster. It's some sort of killer ape or something. But So there's a third series of Crestwood books that came out like 92-ish that covered stuff like The Fly and Jaws, Critters, Nightmare on Elm Street and stuff like that. I don't know if they ever had wow. those in our elementary school. Sean, you brought up the elephant in the room, which is the Goonies. Now, the Monster Squad, again, we've talked about it, it has a cult following. It did not have financial success when it came out in theaters. Very few people saw it. It was mostly caught on home video. But The Goonies is kind of the other side of the coin where that was a huge film. People remember fondly. And The Goonies Camp is probably, you know, better staffed than The Monster Squad. But the question I have is, in your mind, I mean, because a lot of people say, well, The Monster Squad is just a Goonies ripoff. It's Goonies with the monsters. So in your mind, where do you see the similarities? So where do you see there's a valid argument that how do you combat that discussion? Yeah, I would I would definitely say that there's a valid argument in the fact that it came out like two or three years later. And, you know, you've got a group of kids that get together to go on an adventure. There's a hero character like Sean is kind of like Mikey in the Goonies. There's kind of counterparts, you know, you've got Chunk and then you've got Horace, the two fat kids. And, you know, there's like adult villains uh, that are chasing down the kids, uh, whether they be monsters or the Fatalis. But I'd say that where Monster Squad isn't a ripoff is where uh, Shane Black and Fred Decker were really trying to evoke the little rascals kind of a feel to their characters. In fact, the whole idea of the movie was like, what if the little rascals had met the Universal monsters, kind of like having <laughs> Costello back in the day? So even though, you know, Goonies was a really big thing, it's more along the lines of a straight up fantasy picture where. Monster Squad is a little bit more of like horror comedy. So I do think it's its own thing. I can I can totally see where people would think it's a ripoff. But in that same kind of vein is, you know, Goonies just a ripoff of E.T. or Gremlins or something like that. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, obviously, the other side of things is people could say, you know, there's a scary but lovable giant who betrays <laughs> its family and joins the heroes. You know, so you have Sloth for Frankenstein. <laughs> That's or, a good call. Yeah. yeah, the craziest thing, though, is that the mom from the Goonies is the same mom from the Monster yep. Squad. <laughs> Mary Ellen <laughs> Trainer is. What's the story there? Yeah. Yeah. I think I think Mary Ellen Trainer just had the corner on the market at being the mom for everybody in the eighties. Yeah. Like, literally, like I, if if you know, like when I wasn't thinking about my own mom, like that's who was popping up in my head, honestly. <laughs> see, I rented the Monster Squad when I was about ten, and I didn't even see Chunk and the Gang and the Goonies until my late teens. So I was always a Monster Squad kid all the way. Like that was my child adventure group. So 
the thing that I think is awesome about the movie is obviously you have the monster mashup concept, you know, okay, so you have Dracula with Mummy, with the Wolfman, with Frankenstein, which is pretty cool. And you have the costumes and the gore in the film are pretty legitimate, right? I mean, exploding Wolfman, Dracula (laughs) killing cops and blowing up clubhouses. I mean, I think it's the edge of the monster squad that makes you feel like you're dipping your toe in real horror movies because it's pretty intense at times. You know, they don't, they don't pull back a whole lot. Yeah, I, I think if there's one thing that Fred Decker did, where I, I'm assuming he had a hand in this, was picking Stan Winston Creature Shop to handle all the creature effects. They really wanted the universal license for the film, but they couldn't get a hand on it. So they ended up getting with Stan Winston, who had just come off of like Terminator. And they were like, look, we want really great monsters, but we can't make them look like the universal monsters. And we kind of need a new spin on this stuff. And him and his team went nuts and did such a great job. I mean, I don't think we've ever seen a better mummy on film, oh, uh, yeah. to be honest. I mean, someone that's actually like decrepit like a mummy, but still kind of frightening. They were also the it was the first time that we saw a revamp of the creature from the Black Lagoon. That's a universal monster that came later and sort of, you know, he's super popular. But at the same time, he wasn't around when they were doing like those Monster Mash movies back in the, the late 40s. So it's kind of cool to see him included in with the group and to get a very wicked and kind of frightening redesign that's that's way more scary than the original creature ever was. Yeah, he's got just a, a more mutant looking style than the original. And, you know, the, the thing I think is interesting about the film as well is whereas Goonies, I feel like was, I don't know, there, there was sort of like a personal journey for Mikey, at least they were sort of pushing that and then they're fighting to keep their homes. You know, the Monster Squad, it really isn't about any one character's personal story. I mean, they try to shoehorn in the parents' troubled Mm -hmm. marriage and there's a little bit of that, but that really isn't any motivation for Sean or Phoebe to do anything. It's really about the adventure itself and cool moments of children taking charge, right? When adults are falling behind and not willing to do anything. Totally. Uh, yeah, but I'm, I'm curious for you, you know, aside from Horace, who we've already said we both uh, <laughs> relate to, who is your favorite character, whether it be monster or supporting character or member of the squad overall? You know, behind Horace, uh, my favorite is Eugene, the littlest, youngest member of the squad. <laughs> and I think it's because he gets some of the best scene stealing lines in the movie. And Michael Faustino just really nailed it. As a little kid, uh, he he just had the, the perfect pose and perfect delivery of some of these lines that just made them classics, like Mummy Came in My House or Creature Stole My Twinkie. <laughs> and he brings Pete, the adorable beagle dog with him, who's the unofficial other member of the squad. When they actually take down the monsters, I think Eugene, Pete, Horace, and Rudy do the heavy lifting of destroying most of the monsters. Like, I don't think they would have gotten the mummy if it wasn't for the dog, so. Yeah, I mean, Eugene's bedroom is the one that's the most 80s. It's the one I love. He's got a Punisher poster. He's got Robotech pajamas on. Like, (laughs) I I just love his room. I mean, whether or not you got a mummy in the closet, you know, it's just that always excited me so much. So now for me, I was a huge Kids Incorporated fan growing up. So when Ryan Lambert rolls up on his bike and lights the match on his heel, lights up a cigarette. I, I was just 100% won over by that moment uh, because I was just like, it's the guy from Kids Incorporated. I can't believe it. <laughs> and I had no idea, you know, he was in the film. And, you know, 
just fun fact sidebar here, but I actually got to be on a TV show in the nineties called great pretenders oh, with wow. Renee and Stacy from kids incorporated. Nice. So that was like my dream come true at that moment. I was too shy to talk to him off stage, you know, but it's, it's one of those things where I'm just like, wow, that would be so cool to meet Ryan Lambert or Andre Gower who played Sean, who did a lot of TV work as well, but I only ever knew him from this film. I feel like we've given the monsters the short end of the stick here where we have have given them their due. Yeah, let's talk about those monsters. Did you have one that stuck out for you, Jeremy? Uh, apparently Wolfman does have nards. <laughs> the age-old yes. question has been answered. Right. <laughs> Dracula is like the mastermind behind the crew or what? In this reality, and Sean, maybe you could clarify what's going on here, but he is the master of Frankenstein. When Frankenstein wakes up, he's like, master, long time. And then Dracula gives us this, his really longing look to Frankenstein in his casket. So I was always curious about that. I was like, why is Dracula in charge of Frankenstein? Any ideas? You know, I think mainly it's just that he's probably the most humanistic of all the monsters. Like you feel bad for them, you know? Like with the Wolfman, he doesn't want to be the Wolfman, right? So he has his human form and his wolf form. But when he's human, he doesn't want to be the Wolfman. So he's not the kind of character that would be a leader, you know, monster-wise. And then when he does turn into the Wolfman, he's more animalistic. You know, the mummy is non-vocal and kind of a thing. Creature, same way. Frankenstein's definitely something that kind of needs to be controlled to a certain extent. So Dracula, by default, is kind of the most leader-esque of the crew. But then there's also, I think, because he was the first universal monster, I think he just kind of falls on top in terms of the number one monster of all time and in, in, in a weird way yeah i think you're right i mean it just makes sense he's taking the leadership role sure you can be master you'll be all our masters <laughs> but you're mentioning wolfman you know he doesn't want to be wolfman so in his human form when he is at the police station trying to get locked up because it's a full moon and he knows he's a danger to the world i just think it's crazy to me that uncle rico from napoleon <laughs> dynamite john grease is the wolfman and that yeah. guy pops up in so many movies and tv shows he's had like quite a career if totally. you look at him you're just like wait a minute there he is again there he is again yeah he's laszlo and real genius uh he's the tupperware wig guy in the uh, seinfeld episodes uh-huh. <laughs> yeah he's all over the place He's great. But yeah, but then also, obviously, Tom Noonan, I think he was probably the biggest name in the film at the time. I know he had like Red Dragon under his belt and a couple other major roles in the 80s. And he's playing Frankenstein's monster. But I always hear his name come up in movie talk. The only thing I really know him from is the Ripper from The Last Action Hero with Mm -hmm. Schwarzenegger. I love him in that. He's such a great villain. (laughs) who's just like heard it all. He's not buying any of Jack Slater's bluffs but uh but the he this film he gives such a sweet sadness the moment in the clubhouse where they hand him a frankenstein mask mm, scary you know, he's just he feels so bad for him and yeah he's such a sweet guy and the weirdest thing is i heard that uh, tom newton was in character on set all the time yeah, he went full method acting with this, and uh, he refused to let the kids see him out of makeup. And uh, in between takes or when there was breaks or lunches or whatever, he would stay in character. He'd go sit in the corner and just be Frankenstein. <laughs> 
<laughs> and there's there's anecdotes where like Rudy um, Ryan Lambert, you know, went over and was like, you know, cons- you know, he wanted to learn from some of the older actors on the set. And so he sat down and he was like asking him questions and like Noonan was just responding in grunts and stuff. And it was just like, this can't be real. And, you know, there's also quite a few great side characters in the film. I mean, you got a scary German guy, of course, who I only know from V. I know he was also in the V miniseries in the 80s. Mm-hmm. So he he's great. Obviously, but then you have Sean's dad, who's a cop and his partner that is just not taking the threat seriously at all. <laughs> like, I'm a very good police officer. You know that? <laughs> like, uh, let me ask, did you take it? <laughs> you know, like, it's worth a shot. You know, like he's just, and then he gets blown up later on. I mean, you're just like, wow, you know, this guy was just making fun of everything. And then Dracula throws some dynamite under the car. Gone. But even Dell, the dad is pretty much a jerk. I mean, he's like, Son, I love you, but put your basic lid on it. You know, like everything. Plus, yeah. you know, you were talking about, you know, Mary Ellen Trader being the quintessential 80s mom. Patrick's sister is like the quintessential 80s teen girl to me. Like the hairdo, the attitude. I mean, she's like the babysitter I would have had a crush on forever. Totally. Yeah. She's just perfect. Uh, yeah, Lisa that. Fuller's great. Do you know her from other stuff? Has she been in other stuff? Yes, yeah, she, uh, she was in Teen Witch. Um, I, I believe, again, playing somebody's sister in that one too. But yeah, <laughs> wow. that, she's in one of my favorite scenes in the film, which is the snapshot blackmail scene where Patrick and Rudy need a virgin, so they have to blackmail male his uh, Patrick's sister Lisa Fuller so that she'll read the ancient German incantation and help open a hole into limbo but it's just it's just a great scene because earlier in the film Frankenstein mistakenly snaps a shot of her topless and <laughs> there's just a great back and forth and it leads that. to one of many spit takes by Rudy yes constant <laughs> spit takes everybody's always surprised in the film yeah but yeah I mean like just getting back to Shane Black and his screenplay like the the snappy pattern in the film I think is also what endears you to it because it's just so funny. I mean, aside from all the curse words, you know, 80s cursing for kids, you know, mm-hmm. I feel like that should be a course you teach kids now. 80s cursing for kids. Now, I'm curious to know in your fandom, you know, Andre Gower and Ryan Lambert, they have their own podcast called The Squadcast, which really doesn't focus on the movie itself too often, but it's them kind of traveling around as they go to these cult film screenings during this, the 30th anniversary of the film. And so I know that they are also working on a documentary about the fandom for the film. And Sean, you were recently interviewed for this documentary. I'm curious, can you give us a little preview of as far as what you know about it and what you got to talk about? Yeah, so um, it, it's really kind of a cool project. It, it's something that's morphed into different things from from what I understand over the last couple of years. But it started out as like a uh, a view of cult films with the Monster Squad as sort of a, a you know a broad example of how you know kind of cult films gain the popularity and the strength that they do. But over time, it's really become more of a fan focused documentary about the Monster Squad. So why is the Monster Squad a cult film, and who are these fans? that are, you know, keeping the flame alive. And so they they sort of turn the camera around and they're focusing mainly on the story of the fans and, you know, what brings them to the film, what binds them together and, you know, what just makes this movie something that that has the fandom that it does. I think somehow or another I got on Andre's radar, probably because of my goofy VHS collection. You know, I've written a handful of articles about the film over the years that I think he's been pointed to or whatnot. And they were doing a 30th anniversary uh, Alamo Drafthouse tour where they were taking a 35 millimeter print around and showing it and then also shooting footage 
for the documentary for that. And I happened to live like an hour away from the final stop on that tour. So they thought, well, we're going out to the East Coast anyways. They just decided to, you know, make the trip up to Maryland to interview me here in my house, which was really kind of surreal and odd. You know, I've I've met a handful of BC level actors or whatever at conventions over the years, but uh, yeah, no one's ever actually come to my house. <laughs> that was <laughs> not even mommy. Mommy yeah, not even mommy. <laughs> I wish. Yeah. No. Yeah. That's but... so cool. So now did, I understand they also they took a part of your collection for some display. Is that right? Yeah. What they were going to do was down in Fantastic Fest, which was a couple weeks ago. They were going to put together a 30 minute rough cut teaser of the project. And they were going to screen that at Fantastic Fest. And what they wanted to do was to make like sort of like the end all be all fan event for huge Monster Squad fans. So they were going to show the 30 minutes and then they were going to surprise people, take them out of the theater and into a room where there was a recreation of the clubhouse and a huge sort of like museum quality display of all the merchandise and as much of the the cool stuff that they could cobble together from the film, as well as bringing seven or eight of the actors together so that everyone could get a big signing experience, meet the actors, see a bunch of the shit from the film and just, you know, overall just have a great time and geek out. And I was able to ship down pretty much my entire collection, both VHSs and then like odds and ends. I have like custom skateboards and I have a bunch of ephemera from the film, a bunch of magazine clippings where the film was released on VHS and weird like teen beat magazine clippings with uh, Andre or Ryan where they were talking about <laughs> filming some some really goofy stuff. But yeah, they, they put that all out and they were able to get some of the original props from the film, which is really cool. There's a guy that lives down in Baltimore that has like one of the screen worn capes from Dracula and Eric Vespi formed of Ain't It Cool News. He actually was given the original amulet by Fred Decker back in the day. No way. Wow. And so, yeah, they, he, he lent that to them. So they had that on display for people to look at. And that was really rad. I, I really sad that I didn't get a chance to go down there for the event. But at least my collection was there. So. Yeah, in spirit. Absolutely. Is there, speaking of, you know, Monster Squad collecting and memorabilia, is there actually merchandise that was released at the time of the film? Or like you said, is it mostly just promotional materials? Yeah, like 100% of the vintage stuff is pretty much just promotional materials, whether it be production booklets that were put out to sort of advertise the film to uh, producers and stuff like that, or, you know, VHS copies, standees, promotional buttons when the VHS came out, uh, lobby cards, stuff like that. Um, It wasn't until probably the early 2000s when like some third party companies were coming up with statues and maquettes or resin busts and stuff like that. And these days there's sort of like a bustling market of enamel pins and um, the really fine folks over at 8-Bit Zombie like recently put together a lunchbox and a bunch of t-shirts and stuff. But back in the day, it was all just straight promotional stuff for the film. Okay. Now, had they actually released an official copy of the Monster Squad rap yet? The, the end of last year, Mondo released a seven-inch single that has uh, the Monster Squad rap and the montage song by Michael Cimbello, the Rock mm-hmm. Until You Drop. And then and uh, just recently, I think at the beginning of this year, they put out a two LP set that's got the entire Bruce Broughton score, including oh, wow. the rap and everything. Yeah. So it took 30 years, but it's finally on vinyl. So hopefully we'll get it on CD soon. Yeah. Someday soon. That's great to hear. Wow. I'm so excited. Yeah. It's awesome to be here 30 years later, having watched it all those years. Right. Let's see it have its moment in the sun. Uh, real quick. The Monster Squad rap is still has no byline as far as who performed it. That's still kind of a weird mystery. So. Just came out of nowhere. The guy has disappeared. Whoever performed the rap, maybe he was a monster. He just didn't want to be found. 
Uh, but it's got some great lines in it. I feel like it's so, you know, it's so middle of the road 80s rap that we were getting used to, you know, everybody trying to be run DMC or whoever. But at the same time, it tells the whole story. It's it great. Does. Gives you what you need to know. So, Jeremy, if you need to catch up, just go find the Monster Squad rap on YouTube. I am looking that up. All right. And so as we uh, get ready to go into the pitches then, shot, one last question. You know, the film itself, like we say, we're, we're lucky that we got our DVD, a special edition, Blu-ray release. All of that has happened, you know, in the last 10 years or so. Are there actual deleted scenes that you're aware of in some form in an original script or something else that maybe were a major plot point or character that were left out? Yeah, there, there's actually a lot of that. I've been able to cobble together stuff from like Fangoria articles and uh, stills that I found. There's an entire sequence at the beginning of the film when Van Helsing comes to destroy Dracula and send everyone to limbo when he screws up. This is one of the things that a lot of people kind of block out of their head and they don't realize. But as soon as they introduce Dracula at the very beginning, he just kind of disappears. He never has any kind of a fight with Van Helsing. All of a sudden, Van Helsing storms the castle and it's just like vampire brides and zombies and Dracula's nowhere to be found, which is kind of weird when you go back and watch it and think about that. But there's a whole sequence where Van Helsing does catch up with Dracula outside of the castle and actually stakes him. And they stuck true to the original like Bram Stoker version of what happens when you stake a vampire, which is it just immobilizes him. Hmm. But the way that they screw up is they leave him with the goofiest member of, of their crew that they brought who's not paying attention. And one of the vampire brides gets the drop on him, pulls the stake out, and then Dracula is able to kill him and like escape. Wow. Uh, so there's Yeah, there's a whole cool sequence of that. And there's a there's a great still in Fangoria that shows uh, Duncan Regeer being staked. So he's also, I think if there's a vampire that's ever held a record for being staked the most times, I think he's staked three times in this film. <laughs> <laughs> he just moved, keeps on ticking. There you right? go. And you brought it up earlier, but there's like sort of like the strife between the parents. There's a whole subplot where the mom is actually going to leave the family. She's got her bags packed at the end. And if you watch when like the dad comes running into the house looking for the kids, all her bags are right there uh, by the uh, by the stairs. Wow. And there was a whole yeah sequence cut out where they were going to get more in depth into how the family was kind of falling apart. Yeah, that's a bit heavy handed there. That's definitely the first thing that probably got cut. But by and large, my favorite deleted scene is there's an entire Scooby-Doo kind of subplot to the film where uh, the kids, when they first go into the old house on Shadowbrook Road, they run into a quote unquote descendant of Van Helsing that pops up. And what it was is they had cast Liam Neeson. Now, there's a rumor going around that uh, Neeson was originally cast to play Dracula. But from what I understand, and I actually got to talk to Andre Gower about this, um, they hired Liam Neeson to be this descendant of Van Helsing because he kind of looks like the guy that played Van Helsing. And what it is, is it's actually Dracula in disguise. Like he's got like face makeup on and oh. he's trying to get the kids to lead him down to where the amulet is because he can't get to it himself and he wants to lead them down so that they'll get it. You know, they're doing this thing where they're walking through the spooky mansion and they walk past a mirror and Sean looks at the mirror and all he sees is the makeup kind of hovering in space. And then realizes it's Dracula and there's a whole pulling off the mask. Oh, my gosh, those darn kids moment. <laughs> and I'm so glad it's not in the film because it's ridiculous. But in the same breath, it would have been really awesome to see Liam Neeson in one of his first film roles in the Monster Squad of all things. It would fit, too, because one of the earliest roles I know him from is High Spirits with Steve mm -hmm. Gutenberg, where he plays this abusive ghost who keeps <laughs> coming in and murdering a girlfriend or whatever yeah, over and, and over. An abusive <laughs> horny ghost. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> so then he could just, yeah, just say, put him in another scary film in a small role. Why not? That but, or crawl, you know, whatever you want your early <laughs> Liam Neeson could have added Monster Squad to it. Cool. Well, you know, so there we see what could have been in the Monster Squad. We see that it did not garner the success that merits a sequel, but we're here 30 years later. It's getting its due in pop culture. Maybe it's time it gets its due on the big screen. So let's get into the pitches. Let's talk about what it is that we want to see from our Monster Squad sequel. Go ahead, Sean. Give us what you got. So my first thing is whatever happened to the amulet at the end of the film. At the beginning of the film, they open up a hole in limbo, do that whole rigmarole, and somehow or another, that amulet doesn't disappear or get destroyed. It ends up back in the hands of some descendant of Van Helsing that takes it to Louisiana of all places and hides it in an antebellum mansion. So to stand to reason at the end of this film, when they open the hole in limbo, that amulet has to go somewhere. So my sequel idea is that of all the monsters that get destroyed, there's one that's sort of not really destroyed, more unraveled, and that's the mummy. And so my theory was always that the mummy could reform at some point and go seek out the amulets and hide it until he can find a way to uh, recall Dracula from limbo. So that's the basis of my idea. And that maybe it takes 30 years and the kids have grown up and they've got to face the monsters again. So maybe sort of like an it vibe to it. Oh, cool. That totally makes sense. I mean, they had to wait 100 years last time, right? So what's 30 mm-hmm. years? So did you have anything that you feel like is just Dracula out for revenge? Is that the main crux of it? Is Now it's it's not so much about, I mean, he probably wants to tip the balance t- toward evil's favor, but he's really just going after the kids and trying to <laughs> say like, you put me in limbo and I'll put you in the grave. Totally. I think he has a, uh, he, def- he definitely has a score to settle with Sean. And I, I also think it would be kind of cool for a sequel if not only does he come back, but he has to put together a whole different band of monsters so that you can get into stuff like the Invisible Man or Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde or hell, why wouldn't things like Godzilla be off the table? <laughs> oh, that'd be amazing. Well, good. Well, that's that's really cool. Now, do you have in particular, I, I've always thought about this because, you know, unfortunately, for those who don't know, uh, Brent, the kid who played Horace, passed away uh, pretty early in life, uh, about 10 years after the film. So we don't have the actor to come back and play Horace, reprise his role. Do you have anybody in mind that you think should come back and take his place? Um, I think for something like that, it would be a little bit more classy maybe if like instead of bringing that character back, they find some reason why he can't be there, but they make mention of him and bring up the character so that you can at least sort of point to that and then maybe have like an in memoriam at the end of the credits or something like that. Or have Um, Horace's cousin. (laughs) Right. That would actually be pretty funny if you got someone like uh, the guy that played Cousin Oliver in uh, The Brady Bunch. (laughs) Like he could come back. He's sort of like overweight and he's, you know, he's generally that character anyways. Robbie Wrist. Robbie Wrist. There you go. Yeah. (laughs) Which of uh, Mikey and the Teenage Ninja Turtles first movie. Yes. They could bring him back. Maybe he's like a a cousin of Horace that uh, fills in the gap. Now, the other question I would have in this, if you've thought about it, is so obviously Frankenstein is in limbo with Dracula. So he escapes and he teams back up with the squad. Or what do you think? What, what totally. is yeah. yeah, that would that would be like the, the surprise ending thing where, uh, you know, you, you've been missing him through the whole film. And then he shows up at the very end to kind of like help save the day, sort of the same way that Van Helsing does when they have the final battle in the first movie. Yeah. Sort of a callback. All right. Well, so in my pitch, I was kind of similar where I wanted more of the same, but maybe raise the stakes a little. I don't know. 
saving the world, I guess, is as high as you could go. But I wanted to see where, where can we take it when the when the band gets back together here. So in my film, Monster Squad 2, let's just keep it simple. It's been 30 years since the Monster Squad kept the balance between good and evil by banishing Dracula to Limbo, as we've discussed. So the lives of its members, though, have taken very different paths. So Horace, a.k.a. Fat Kid, stayed in town, became a hunky firefighter. All the girls love him. Still a nice guy, but he just happened to uh, get into amazing shit shape little eugene became a cargo pilot so he travels the world patrick became a very visible u.s senator and nobody's seen rudy in years sean crenshaw meanwhile has become a cryptozoologist a seeming crackpot who's always in search of mythical creatures like bigfoot or the loch ness monster he's constantly embarrassing patrick by getting arrested for trespassing on government property or making wild claims of encounters with legendary beasts in the media and then citing patrick someone who knows he's telling the truth that monsters exist. And so Patrick's just comes like, oh, just shut up. <laughs> so Sean's sister, Phoebe Crenshaw, meanwhile, is a perpetually single career librarian. And one night while she's locking up the library, she's approached by a wild-eyed man. And he scares her by declaring cryptically, his love burns. He demands a bride. His minions are coming beware before jamming a ring on her finger that she can't remove and then the man disintegrates into a pile of dust after contacting sean to tell him the story they begin to research the origins of the ring and find that it's made from a metal that no longer exists on earth and soon simultaneous reports of a fly man terrorizing people in los angeles a gang of mole men wreaking havoc in new mexico and a gelatinous blob engulfing people in phoenix seems like too much of a coincidence to ignore so all these creatures start to converge on phoebe's current residence of washington state and they're making their way to the dormant mount st Helens, terrorizing citizens as the mole men abduct young women by dragging them underground. So Sean and Phoebe recognize the connection between the disappearances and the monsters, and after being disregarded again as crazy by the local police, they get the reluctant members of the monster squad back together to help them rescue the women. So first they get together, they drive up the side of this volcano, fat kid swinging his fireman's axes at the mole men like a barbarian. Sean's trying to sneak past the blob after freezing it with a fire extinguisher. Eugene's keeping the flyman busy by making passes on the mountain in a small played but this gets noticed by overly zealous forest service rangers that show up to stop the siege then rudy appears out of nowhere to even the score with an arsenal of weapons in the trunk of his pink cadillac and an elvira looking girlfriend named crystal by his side but this attempt to thwart the evil creatures is unsuccessful thanks to the government interference and phoebe is captured so Sean decides to call in some monster help of his own and has Eugene fly the team out to three locations to meet and pick up first Bigfoot, who turns out to be a noble warrior that spouts common sense wisdom and bonds with Horace over being a big guy. El Chupacabra, a beastly Latin lover who's constantly hitting on Rudy's girlfriend. And Mothman, a pacifist with psychic abilities who seemingly dislikes El Chupacabra. So these legends are friends of Sean's that have allowed him to study their lives in return for keeping their whereabouts secret. So the trio reveal that they are ancient beings, the original monster squad, if you will, who once teamed up to save the world from a demon named Infernus 10,000 years ago. 
Mothman reveals that Phoebe's mysterious ring is the key to awakening and controlling the entombed demon who is mentally controlling these freaks of nature to do his business. So Sean and the squad ask Patrick to get them clearance from the government to enter that airspace without interference this time so they can save Phoebe. But the senator does them one better by coming along to keep an eye on the rescue effort. It gives Eugene a government forest firefighting helicopter to fly them up to the mountain again. They're intercepted by the flyman, but he's chopped to bits by the blades. Unfortunately, this just makes him split into multiple fly people. Then the squad barely lands on solid ground to find Infernus rising from the volcano as it shakes and shudders, attempting to complete a ceremony that will wed him to Phoebe and make them rulers of the Earth, according to his prehistoric pact with the Earth's creators. So, in the final battle, as the volcano rumbles, as we said, the squad surrounds the blob on all sides, causing it to stretch out too thin, trying to attack in all directions. And then Patrick helps trick the fly people into landing inside the gelatinous surface where they get stuck like flypaper. And then through a hidden net that was underneath the blob on the ground that's connected to the helicopter, Eugene lifts the mass of blob and fly creatures up into the cold air, freezing the blob, dropping the net onto the gaggle of mole people who have been battling Bigfoot and El Chupacabra on the ground and killing all the devious henchmen till only Infernus remains. So, the squad distracts Infernus with their useless weapons, unfortunately, as Bigfoot retrieves and teaches Phoebe an incantation that will remove the ring and send Infernus back into exile. El Chupacabra sacrifices himself to save Rudy from an attack by Infernus. The death of his comrade enrages Mothman, causing him to abandon his pacifist ways and charge Infernus with a jagged log, but he's swatted away. Bigfoot jumps in to grapple with the demon while Phoebe finishes the incantation, releasing the ring, which Mothman then flies far away from the volcano. Infernus is swallowed into the depths of the lava as the mountain settles and cools. And after a memorial for El Chupacabra, the Monster Squad says farewell to Bigfoot and Mothman and goes on their way, having saved the world once again. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's usually a wow with Adam. (laughs) I felt so woefully unprepared with my pitch. <laughs> well, if it makes you feel any better, I lay out these entire films that rarely get chosen. The basic concepts usually win the vote as being the most exciting. <laughs> well, I actually, it's more of a concept, not a pitch. Because okay. I would rather see uh, the idea of Monster Squad, but in the hands of Taika Watiti. Uh, Flight of the Concords? Flight of the Concords, the new Thor Ragnarok coming out. What we do in the shadows. What we do in the yeah, shadows. So I was yeah. going to say, is it going to be a mockumentary? It might turn out interesting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I would like to see him kind of reboot rather than a sequel. Gotcha. Have you have you guys seen, um, was it Hunt for the Wilder People? I don't think I've caught that uh, one yet. No. Yeah, that, that's it. one of his uh, New Zealand only uh, releases that's sort of making its way into the world. But he, he has a young kid in that one and an older guy and they kind of team up. And I can totally see him with like a younger cast and kind of going nuts with that. Right. And he's got the right comedy vibe. And yeah, it was just the concept I was thinking of. No, that makes sense. Like you said, because he's done comedy horror before. So why would he you know, not be able to bring that essence to it all and give it, you know, maybe a new flavor, but yeah, of course we could bring back, you know, members of the original cast, whatever they're going to play, maybe not their own characters, but you never know. As long as Jermaine Clement, I'm trying to see he, he could be Dr. Jekyll or Mr. Hyde, you know? There like, you go. Yeah. Oh, and also in uh, Adam in your pitch, Jerry O'Connell for the grown up fat kid. Just saying. Oh, that'd be awesome. <laughs> 
since yeah his little stand by me growth spurt yeah right, right. exactly <laughs> <laughs> that would be awesome yes all right well let's see where we take this in our final pitch decisions all right adam where do you stand well, I, li- I like the idea of a reboot because I feel like, you know, we could definitely get some more juice out of it and reintroduce it because uh, how many people have seen the original to appreciate a sequel? And yet at the same time, I feel like if it's going to be because it's probably going to be like a crowdfunded film, whatever, it's going to be for the fans. And I feel like Sean's pitch of just, OK, here's a loose end. And here's how it leads directly into the sequel with the mummy holding on to the amulet all that time. I mean, we didn't get a lot of details, but to me, there's a lot of potential there that I like because, you know, for my nostalgic heart and soul, I want everybody back in and seeing how they (laughs) fight monsters in their 40s, you know, so I vote for Sean. All right, Sean, where do you stand? Um, I'm going to have to go with Adam because the amount of work that you put into that needs to be on screen. (laughs) Fred Decker, call me. If Shane Black's busy, I'll take care of it for you. I can actually hook that up. (laughs) Get my spec script rolling. How about you, Jeremy? All right. So drum roll. All your hard work paid off, Adam. I got to vote you. <laughs> All right. Can't believe it. Was it El Chupacabra? You big yeah. Chupa fan? Uh, uh, we'll call it the Bigfoot. The Bigfoot. Yeah, I was yeah. going to say, I, I, I can see like Shades of Harry and the Hendersons, but different. <laughs> well, and to be fair, I, I, I thought Jeremy might call this out, but uh, in our original pilot episode, we did the Goonies and we mm. ended up having the Goonies team up with Bigfoot to help find a stolen fortune. D.B. Cooper. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> and so it was pretty wild. So I was like, I thought you were thinking, oh, you go back to that well again. Well, I was going to let you slide on that because <laughs> was that was my pitch. Yeah, it was great. I loved it. Yeah, that was of one course, of my favorites. So I, I essentially also got a vote on this. So, yeah, we're good. (laughs) Good. The question is, though, so I put out there what I put out there, but where do you think we can improve it? Who do you think was missing? Like I said, the original film is action, adventure, plot points, and then the comedy. And I think what we all remember are the lines and the dialogue and the fun. How do you feel like about Rudy just kind of being mysterious and showing up out of nowhere? I personally kind of like that idea. I could see like sort of like a uh, Mad Max Fury Road kind of thing where he's not like the focus because that's one of the things about the first film is he gets most of the monster kills and most of the he does get, uh, you know, most of the good screen time. So it'd be kind of cool to see him like take a backseat to it. But when he does do stuff, it's balls out. I like it. And then the, the only thing I couldn't figure out, originally I was trying to figure out, a, you know, Limbo opens up again and we get Dracula and some of the classic monsters. But do you feel like people will miss them? Do you feel like they, because I was trying to figure out a way we could get Frankenstein back in there. But it's, then I was like, well, I feel like Bigfoot's filling the Frankenstein role in this. Yeah, for me personally, I don't think it's necessary because I think it's kind of neat, actually, that you kind of sidestep the classic monsters a little bit and go to some of the B monsters. Mm. And then also this whole idea of going into the cryptozoology angle is I, I think an interesting way to broaden the universe. Cause at the end of the day, if we just, if you just bring back another stable of classic universal monsters or something like that, it's, you know, it really is kind of just like, oh, okay, we're just going to do this again. But the fact mm. that you broaden the universe and take it in a slightly different direction, but kind of still keep it in the horror genre. I think that's, that was actually kind of clever. So yeah. Yeah. So with Fred, with Fred Decker, you know, because I guess we could talk about, uh, do we want him to come back and direct, or is it Taika Waititi? You know, like who, 
do we feel like Fred Decker's still got the right essence of it? I, I think fans would revolt if it wasn't him. And I, I love his his attitude, I mean, even like Night of the Creeps and some of his other films. He, they're always super fun. Like they have like a horror element to them, but then there's always just this this excitement and energy to them. So I feel like he could probably still do that in this day and age. But did you have anybody else in mind for directing? It's a good question. I'd actually like to see uh, Joel Schumacher get a shot at horror again. Oh, I wow. feel like he's kind of gotten a bad rap ever since the uh, those uh, those really really horrible Batman sequels. <laughs> but he's got some really crazy films under his belt that he doesn't get a lot of uh, appreciation for. And, yeah, like Lost uh, Boys. You're right. Lost yeah, Boys totally. is a perfect example of what he could do with that same vein. Yeah. Yeah, Lost Boys and Flatliners. But yeah, I think I think he would bring something back and just just I don't know. I feel like he's been like waiting for a sort of comeback. There's there's some directors that that have kind of like lost it. Like I, you know, part of my mind is going to something like John Carpenter because he can also handle that kind of comedy horror mix pretty well, or Sam Raimi. But I, I feel like they've kind of maybe lost a little bit of their edge. Mm-hmm. So it would probably have to be someone maybe younger, but the current well, I, I pro- love that idea though. Joel Schumacher just giving giving him his resurgence in a cult film, you know, totally. sequel. And so he gotta get some cred back from the community, from the nerd community, right? We're like, oh, he's doing a Monster Squad sequel. Yeah. Maybe, maybe he's all right. <laughs> and especially since your concept is so balls out crazy, like his visual style, I think, would appeal to that very well. No, I think I think that's actually a great pull. What do you guys think about in terms of this time around? Uh, you know, because we talk about we, there wasn't any merchandising. And this is a, a segment we haven't pulled up, you know, in, in a long time. But, it, you know, if, if the film is to come back and we know it's for the, the 30 to 40 somethings out there who have enjoyed the film on their own, shared it with friends. What type of merchandising do you feel like you would want to see for the film? Well, I know for me, um, trading cards. And a Skyrim-esque game with like an open world thing where you can play like the plot from the first movie and the plot from the second movie. Oh, wow. I'm, I'm not a huge video game guy now, but I would love to just run around in the world of the original Monster Squad. Run around the spooky mansion and try to find all the hidden passageways and end up fighting crazy monsters all the time. I think there's a lot they could do with that. That's a great idea. Yeah, definitely. And it seems like in this day and age, there's so many, you know, either crowdfunded or whatever video games that, that they could definitely make that happen. Then, like you said, the trading cards in the retro style, mm-hmm. you know, in a wax pack. That's cool. I feel like you always have to have an action figure collection for me, but I want it to be ridiculous, like late 80s and early 90s action figures were, where like they all come with weapons, but they're over the top weapons, you know? <laughs> so they have like, you know, a steak shooting bazooka and whatever, you know, <laughs> things like that, where it's just, that wasn't in the film, but it's so of the time that it feels like, yeah, that's what they would have done <laughs> that's where they would have taken it yeah like uh, those last couple lines of gi joe figures yes exactly all neon colors and whatever <laughs> phoebe would have scraps but scraps would be like a huge panther man <laughs> creature that she would ride on or i don't know the other thing that i heard andre and ryan talk about this is the way they marketed the film originally is that it was really ambiguous and it was kind of like viral marketing before that was a thing where they just like put up posters that said something like, are you a member of the squad or something like that? Do you know what I'm talking about, Sean? 
Yeah, there's a whole series of uh, subway posters that are basically like wanted posters for the mummy and Dracula. And it definitely didn't explain anything of what was kind of going on with the movie. They were just sort of like gave a, a little description of each of the characters and the fact that they were quote unquote wanted. And the other big push for the marketing, which was ridiculous, is they didn't know how to market this because it was sort of at the birth of that whole PG-13 you know, era where you're aiming it at both kids and adults at the same time. And because it's got horror and comedy and kids, the marketing department was like, we don't know what to do. So what we're going to do is we're basically just going to steal the marketing from Ghostbusters and <laughs> use all the taglines for that, but just change it all to monsters. Yeah. So, yeah, it was it was a, it was a mix between like weird stuff that was just kind of posted. Nobody knew what it was or stuff where people thought it was like a Ghostbusters ripoff. It's very confusing for folks. So I feel like this time around, they definitely need a marketing campaign that gets you in the mood. So obviously it's got to be a Halloween release. So it's got to yes. be an October film. But I feel like they need to do what they did for The Dark Knight, where they're literally like hiding clues in different major cities and things like that, that help you like solve the mystery or whatever, so that you go in with some understanding of like, you know, who is in furnace and who is, you know, whatever, like just the, you know, the fly rip off and everything else so that there's something that people get behind. And they, maybe it's even like reports from Sean. So Andre Gower does like these web videos where he's, you know, showing how crazy he looks. And so you get kind of get on board with that. Or even maybe we could do something where there are appearances by monsters. I mean, they'd probably get in trouble for this, but I'm always a fan of the idea of those flash mobs. <laughs> so you have like... <laughs> You have like, oh, you know, the mole men pop up in New Mexico somewhere. There's some flash mob of mole men, <laughs> you know, stealing women and pulling them underground. I don't know what they would do, but something weird like that where it's like, what was that? You know, if you would know what to expect from this film and just get the conversation going outside of the hardcore community. Totally. When when this film originally premiered and they had the two premiere parties in New York and Los Angeles, they hired actors to play the monsters at the premiere party and they scared a bunch of the people coming that didn't realize that this was going to happen. So there's some great photos of Kiefer Sutherland being snuck up on by like a werewolf. <laughs> and so like what they would have to I think what would be great for this one and they're bringing it back is to just crash other premiere parties for other films ah! <laughs> like go to Sundance with the monsters and just go to town and get a bunch of viral Instagram posts going where they're like attacking indie actors and that would be <laughs> who, awesome who are these yes. monsters what's going on that would be and you know what they could even do like we said Andre Gower and Ryan Lambert did a lot of TV in the 80s so they are connected to a lot of child actors of the era so if they could like pull in the different 80s celebrities they worked with and then do like kind of yeah like stage these moments with them I feel like that could be a lot of fun because again if that could be like the nod to the the nostalgic fans where you could you know pull them in and so you get i don't i don't know who you would get if it's going to be todd bridges or whatever you know just <laughs> random people from random sitcoms of the 80s that get scared by monsters or go on like a fake ghost hunt with andre gower you know like when he say he's got some tv series that he does is uh you know chasing ghosts or whatever totally um again not to be like oh hey, i hung out with andre gower but when he, when he... <laughs> When he came out to the house, that was probably the most surreal moment I had was after we were done filming the interview and everything was you know, said and done. And he was kind of flipping through my ephemera to see what he wanted to bring down to Austin. He was going through like these old issues of Tiger Beat and teen magazines. And he would see all the people that he knows, like all of his friends and stuff that he grew up with in Hollywood. And he'd be like, oh, wow, Alyssa Milano, I haven't talked to her in a little while. I got to give her a call. And <laughs> 
totally surreal for me. But yeah, he does. He probably does have a lot of connections to a lot of folks. That I, I know that there was some joking around about Corey Feldman because I have some pictures of the two of them together. And so, yes, that would be awesome. And I don't know how much you guys have paid attention to Ryan and Andre's stuff lately, but they definitely do kind of have a chip on their shoulders about the Goonies. So mm-hmm. I yeah. think what could be a really cool viral marketing thing is if they start floating the idea of a Goonies sequel again and maybe get some of the Goonies actors together, but then have the monsters attack them. And it turns out to be like a viral secret marketing thing for the Monster Squad reboot or sequel. That could be I gotta cool. believe Jonathan Key Quad is up for that. He's got to be game, you know. Totally. Yeah, I mean, I know, you know, we have people who are successful lawyers and stuff now. Yeah. Maybe they don't have time for that in the Goonies camp, but you never know. You know, maybe yeah. he wants to. I, you know, fun fact, random. We, I feel like I feel like I'm betraying the Monster Squad by going off a Goonies tangent. But my buddy in my high school band, his brother went to UC Berkeley where Chunk was his fellow student. Oh, and nice. he actually ran for student body president. And his campaign was Chunk for president. And he won <laughs> by a landslide, you know. So just always thought that was a fun piece of trivia. <laughs> totally. That's well, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I, th- I feel like, yeah, if we can get the right marketing push for this, especially since now Halloween starts so early, people are so excited for it now these days. It's yeah. like one of the bigger holidays that comes around. I feel like we could definitely make this into a major event that people look forward to even if they've never seen the original film and you just kind of bring it back around for people and they're saying yes monster squad i love monster squad i mean it could be like the cult of troll 2 for monster totally. squad now you know even though we never got a troll 3 sadly <laughs> could you could you capture lightning in a bottle and nilbog oh my god <laughs> Well, Sean, thank you so much for being here with us and sharing your your Monster Squad fandom and knowledge. It really was a treat. Hey, thank you for having me. This was great. Why don't you tell everybody where they could find you online, where they could look for you? Do you know what the release date of the documentary is? I'm not sure the exact release date of the documentary. It's probably early next year. They're they're still doing some filming, and uh, they're about to go to London, I think, in a couple weeks and uh, film with some of the international fans. But um, I know at some point it was hooked to Netflix, so it might be like a Netflix original early uh, next year or mid so. next year. Yeah. Uh-huh. As far as my stuff goes, my main focus is my website, brandedinthe80s.com. But then I also podcast, like uh, we brought up earlier, with my bud Paxton Holly and my wife, uh, Jamie Hood, in our cult film club podcast at uh, cultfilmclub.com. Just talking about fun cult films and but yeah, those are the two main things for me. Yeah, check them out. How about on Twitter if people want to tweet at you? Oh, if uh, yeah, if people want to find me on Twitter, I'm at Sean Robert. And then um, I'm pretty active these days on uh, Instagram at, at Smurfwreck. So find the man, share your, your geeky 80s fandom with him. He will keep you entertained on brandedinthe80s.com. That's for sure. There's some amazing collections that he shares with us. So be sure to check that out. And yeah, find your favorite monsters, celebrate them this Halloween. Maybe find your way into a, a rental situation where you watch the Monster Squad. If you've never seen it, we guarantee you will be entertained. It is so much fun. Belongs in your Halloween rotation. So until next time, as the portal to limbo opens, don't go, Frankenstein. Hi, Phoebe. (laughs) Cue throwing scraps. (laughs) There we go. Nice.
We hope you enjoyed this episode of Sequel Quest and invite you to join us next week for another discussion about a film that never was. Share your ideas with the Sequel Quest universe by visiting SequelQuestPod.com, following us on Twitter at SQPod, on Facebook by searching Sequel Quest, or sending an email to SequelQuestPod at gmail.com. Let the world know how much you enjoy the show by leaving a review and five-star rating on iTunes. All films and characters discussed on Sequel Quest are the property of their respective studios and license holders. No copyright infringement is intended. 